Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here with David Canfield. Hi. Richard Lawson and Rebecca Ford have left us both for Europe, (laughs) actually, uh, which is not nice. Um, So we're joined by Chris Murphy. Hi, Chris. Hi. Excited to do the work of two people today. (laughs) (laughs) Why aren't you in Europe is the question. Why aren't we all in Europe? (laughs) That's an Uh, amazing question. (laughs) I've been asking myself that frequently this month. Um, But Chris, you're back just in time because we're closing out our Pride Month flashbacks, which you were here to kick off with us. It's been such a great month uh, of looking back at these movies. And we're closing with, I think, the only movie you can close a Pride Oscar flashback series with. It's Moonlight. Um, But first, we're going to talk about some news that's out there, including about the Oscars, about the Golden Globes, and about festival season, which is right around the corner. Um, David, you got to write the exciting news. Uh, Niche, but exciting news that uh, the Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, will have its world premiere at the Toronto Film Festival, which I think we had speculated might happen. Knives Out premiered there in 2019. Um, but I, I'm excited. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We'd, we'd heard yesterday that there was a world premiere announcement coming today, which was, was the first for the fall festivals. Uh, and you rightly uh, speculated that it would be Glass Onion because, of course, Knives Out premiered at TIFF. Um, one of the, I think, biggest world premiere launches at TIFF over the last several years, uh, just in terms of kicking off there before going on to have an incredibly successful box office run, really strong critical acclaim, and uh, an Oscar nomination for screenplay, and nearly got into Best Picture as well. So Netflix, which is now um, handling this new movie, the first one was distributed by Lionsgate, clearly knows that playbook worked, and they're going to try to make lightning strike twice. Yeah, it's really crazy to realize that seeing Knives Out at TIFF in 2019 was like one of my last pre-COVID movie-going memories uh, because it feels like that was ages ago. I mean, it really was ages ago. Um, It's kind of crazy looking at the uh, Audience Award winners from that year. Uh, Jojo Rabbit won the Audience Award, which isn't that surprising. It's a crowd pleaser. Um, And then it was Marriage Story and Parasite, uh, all Best Picture nominees. Um, Knives Out totally should have been the Audience Award winner that year. Yeah, and a couple of those movies are more definitely more divisive than I feel like your average TIFF People's Choice yeah. winner is. Particularly, yeah. I mean, Jojo Rabbit was, I remember out of TIFF, there were definitely people who loved it, but that was not a slam dunk, this movie is on its way to winning Oscars kind of deal at the at that moment, at least. So now, now knowing that the TIFF announcements and the festival announcements are going to be coming, um, you know, we're heading into the 4th of July holiday week here, but in Venice, they'll probably get ready to announce things. Um, I was eyeing the trailer for See How They Run, the Searchlight film uh, that came out today as well. Um, it's got Saoirse Ronan and Sam Rockwell. It's kind of a murder mystery at a West End theater. Uh, it's got a release date of September 30th. Maybe we get two murder mysteries at TIFF this year. Yeah, I think that um, it's nice to see TIFF pretty much guaranteed from what I can have been told and what I can gather uh, to make a really big splash again, finally. Uh, it's first post-COVID and having two blockbuster murder mystery comedies is exactly the way I'd want to see it done. 
Yeah, I, I just the idea of sitting in a TIFF audience. Uh, to, you know, uh, David, you and I will both be there. We've both been before, and the TIFF crowds are you know get media from all over the all over the world. But a lot of people just live in Toronto and love movies, and the energy can be um, you can't get it anywhere else. So a movie yeah. like Glass Onion just feels so perfect for it. I miss it. I'm so excited. Me too. Looking at this cast for See How They Run, I had, I had no idea this was happening. And it's Shirsha Ronan, Sam Rockwell, David Oyelowo, Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson. It's very sort of like giving Glass Onion a run for its money in terms of starry, starry <laughs> murder whodunit cast. I'm really... It's, it's giving Glass Onion, it's giving Murder on the Orient Express. It's... <laughs> Somehow finding its way between the two. I remember when White Lotus season two and Glass Onion casts were coming together around the same time, and it was impossible to remember who was in which. And now I think <laughs> yeah. See How They Run is going to be added to that. Like knowing who was in which uh, starry murder mystery cast is going to be impossible. Place Aubrey Plaza correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I can't do it. I would, so someday I will. Today is not that day. Yeah. Um, okay, David, in other uh, news that you've been writing about for us, uh, the Academy announced its new slate of members, um, which is always a really exciting time to kind of um, see who they're paying attention to, see the recent Oscar nominees or winners who get in the club. You know, Ariana DeBose, I think no one doubted that she was going to be a new Academy member. Um, but you and I both noticed that there were some people who had Oscar buzz last year but didn't get nominated who got their seat at the table. Yeah, um, it's always something that the Academy does to an extent, but it did feel like our months-long <laughs> our months long updated prediction lists that the Academy just sort of scrolled through them, <laughs> checked off lots of people who narrowly missed out um, on nominations. Both of the the Belfast actors, Katrina Balfe and Jamie Dornan, were invited to join the Academy, the two who were not nominated, I should say. Um, Renata Rinesvay from Worst Person in the World, um, who did get a BAFTA nomination. It was interesting. There was a lot of leaning toward Inter- who, who international groups recognize this past award season, which makes mm. sense given the direction of the Academy. Uh, once again, the the list of this year's invitees is half people not from the United States, over a third people of color, almost half women. So definitely the same kind of trends we've been seeing the last few years with the Academy committing to um, a changed sort of membership and seeing what comes of that in terms of its nominations and winners. Yeah, I was excited to see Robin DeJesus, who had this great breakout role in Tick, Tick, Boom, and we um, featured him in our Phase 1 Oscar issue, kind of knowing he was a long-shot contender, but it's nice to see that someone else was uh, noticing his great work. Uh, Chris, who were you excited to see? I'm super excited to see Andrew Ahn, who directed uh, Fire Island, which was, you know, a, 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 we've talked a lot about on this podcast. I'm super excited for him. I mean, I'm, like, surprised by some of Jesse Plemons getting in there finally. I mean, he had his um, Oscar nomination for Power of the Dog, but I would have assumed that he might have been in, you He's know, been before. in, like, eight Best Picture nominees. Yeah. This, is, this was overdue. He's been in too many Best Picture nominees. This was, yeah. like... To not be in, but um, and Reed Bernie personally, as a theater person, I think uh, Reed Bernie, uh, he was in Mass this year, and he's you know has a longstanding theater career, and he's made it in. And and um, Shirley Ralph, same yes, theater yeah. legend, <laughs> Abbott Elementary queen, Shirley Ralph. So. <laughs> Thank God for Abbott Elementary to finally get her in there. Yeah, I assume <laughs> that was what did it. A TV show getting you into the Academy. What comes next? <laughs> um, but it really does looking looking at the list. It really it, it I think it. It, it, it's inspiring. It's like, oh, wow. Actually, a, a lot of names that I, I don't know that I've never heard of, but a lot of names I'm like, oh, wow. Like this is actually, I feel like it bodes well for hopefully nominations and winners to come. But I do, I really do want to see Billie Eilish's uh, ballot. I hope somebody yeah. gets their hands on it <laughs> next year because that that is important to me. I want to see what she's checking off. 
Yeah, also in the uh, in the music department, it's exciting to see Dan Romer, who composed pieces yeah. of Southern Wild, and then also Station Eleven this past year. Uh, and also, speaking of Knives Out too, Nathan Johnson, cousin to Ryan Johnson, and who composed Knives Out, I assume is doing Glass Onion and also Nightmare Alley. Um, he seems like an overdue member. Yes. Uh, he did not even make the shortlist for Nightmare Alley, which was quite controversial. Wow. Yeah, see, they're just over they're making up for past wrongs by <laughs> people in the academy. I mean, you look at this list. This is um, 397 people, uh, and we talk about academy members all the time and what the academy likes and what they don't like. And I think this small sample of who's in it is just a constant reminder of, like, this is a wide, wide-ranging group of people. And the, the thinking that they all can think the same thing is is foolish. This, the, the whole point is to get as wide a range of people as possible to pick the best of the year. Yep. And I also like the focus, particularly on talent from last year's international contenders, really trying to put, you know, the star of Drive My Car and a hero um, and the cinematographer of The Hand of God into the Academy and into the, you know, the conversation of where the Oscars are going, because that's the best representative you can get of how to become a global cinema organization. And that really is, this year's list really is um, I think, reflective of that. Yeah, in the directing category, you've got both the director of Lunana, a yak in the classroom, and the director of Flea, um, who have been invited, which is more proof of what you're saying. And Hamaguchi, totally. Drive My Car, too, so mm-hmm. which is great. <laughs> yeah, I always want, because Hamaguchi is one of several people who was nominated by two different branches because he was nominated by directing and writing. And I always just wonder how they, because they get to choose for themselves, right, about which branch they join. Yeah, they get to choose. I, I was relieved Sean Hader also got invited from both because she was nominated for writing Coda and ultimately won, but was not nominated for directing it. Um, Whereas Risu Gamaguchi was nominated for both writing and directing Drive My Car. So that's more typical. Um, But yeah, I think I usually go with directing. (laughs) I think that's sort of the default. Next time we interview one of these people, we have to ask them and get the answer. Yes. Well, let's turn to a different awards body entirely. Um, David, you and I were discussing this variety piece about the the battle for and against the Golden Globes, I guess, is a way to describe it. Where basically there's like two camps of Hollywood publicists and people working with them who want the Globes to go away forever and then who kind of want them to stick around. And it seems to be a little bit of an impasse. Like there, no one quite knows if it's going to stay or go at this point. How did it get to this point, David? There seems to be a lot going on that not, – not that we're not necessarily privy to, but that seems to be going, frankly, beyond the actual value and controversy of the Golden Globes. Mm. Uh, the Variety piece not so subtly hinted at some <laughs> disagreement between <laughs> powerful publicist factions in Hollywood – Of course, there was a really strong push on the part of uh, a certain contingent of publicists uh, to push back against the Golden Globes when that the controversies really first started mounting and um, calling out the um, alleged treatment of various clients and things like that. So that definitely made sense and was a pretty clear side at the beginning of all of this. But now it feels a lot more muddled. Another interesting element that I thought came out of that variety piece was... NBC perhaps identifying an opportunity to um, redefine the terms of their agreement with um, the HFPA and the Golden Globes. Uh, It's no secret that awards shows generally uh, are down in the ratings. It's hard to see how the Golden Globes could fully reclaim the glory it had, even though it does have strong brand recognition. And so that also seems to be at play here is them playing a little bit of hardball uh, and not committing to anything just yet. And I mean, I'll just say in the past week, I've spoken to, well, I, I've spoken to a couple studio sources, but two particularly, 
the first one said, there's no way the Golden Globes are happening this year. And the second said, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Golden Globes this year because they're probably coming back. So <laughs> nobody knows anything. <laughs> and I can't say I know much more than them based on all that. So um, it's a mess. What would you what would you put your money on? Are they coming back or not? I feel like there is enough investment at this point for them to come back in some shape or form. But I think it's coming down to NBC more than we realize in terms of, you know, on both sides of it, right? I think they need assurances that there's going to be enough talent that Mm -hmm. would make people watch. And then the talent probably isn't going to do it without that national platform. So that's, I think, ultimately where the standstill is, even though so much of the noise right now is around intra-Hollywood bickering, really. Mm. Chris, do you care if the Golden Globes come back? I love drama, so I'm like, bring it back, you know? <laughs> Let's shake things up a bit. But I do feel that um, we don't really need them as much as other awards bodies, you know, the TCAs and things like that sort of step up and whatnot. I will say from the Variety piece, the line that gave me most pause and was like, I don't know if actually we should bring them back is hearing that Mark Wahlberg sat for an exclusive HFPA interview to promote his Sony Pictures release, Father Stew. Um, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that if that's what we're, if that's the, where, where we're trending, I don't know, maybe we don't need it anymore. If, if anyone's going to break your boycott. It will yes. be. Father's I, I keep seeing that reference, and I'm like, I don't know that Mark Wahlberg breaking the boycott for Father Stew indicates Hollywood's <laughs> ready to jump back into bed. With, I'm just yeah. not sure that that's sufficient evidence. We we need a little bit more than that, guys. Yeah, they got it. We got to have a little bit more than that to get me back on board fully. But I mean, I think the thing that I keep learning is that even if I think the Golden Globes could go away, no one would miss it that much. It can get replaced by SAG and Critics' Choice. There are enough powerful people in Hollywood who think the Golden Globes have a, not that they are important, but that they are recognizable and that they, they have a visibility that you can't replace with something else, which might be what empowers it to come back. But yeah, I guess to David's point, though, it's like all these award shows are sort of <laughs> falling in the visibility department anyway. So, you know, I don't know. I think maybe the, maybe the Golden Globes are. They've sung their last song. So let's go into our final Pride flashback of June, which is Moonlight. Not really chosen by anyone. It just kind of felt like it was the inevitable place to end this conversation. It is the only film we're discussing this month that has won Best Picture. Um, It is the only, I guess the definition of an LGBTQ film is up for debate, but I would say it is the only one to win Best Picture. Um, Directed by Barry Jenkins. Uh, You hear it at the beginning of every episode of the show uh, because it famously was not announced as a Best Picture winner until (laughs) It was. And I think the only reason I hesitated to go back to Moonlight was because it felt really recent. Like, this podcast existed in the Oscar season when Moonlight was uh, in the running. And I'll talk later about going back and listening to some of those episodes. Um, And Chris, maybe for you, because you have... I don't know if you were covering movies professionally at this point. Did it feel as recent for you, a uh, young person that you are, as it did for me? Did it feel like a uh, like really diving back into the past, revisiting Moonlight? I I, I was not uh, covering movies professionally when Moonlight um, won back in uh, 2016, 2017. I guess it was the Oscars were in 2017 that year. So that was five mm-hmm. years ago. And I was honestly shocked by revisiting because it feels like a movie that like there are certain parts of it that stay with me and that like were so easy to remember and were and were so near and dear to my heart but rewatching it like it has been you know half a decade a little bit over half a decade since this came out and there was a lot that I sort of I don't want to say missed the first time but it didn't feel as immediate I felt the space that has sort of happened between 2016 and now since it came out and it 
it wasn't as immediate as I as I thought, which was sort of lovely. It was it actually is definitely worth revisiting. I was sort of when we brought up Moonlight as a potential movie to bring up, I was like, oh, didn't that happen like two years ago? Like just, <laughs> we've already yeah. sort of done this. But it really not only stands the test of time, but does feel like sort of a, a trip down memory lane, if you will. And like enough time has passed that it I felt it was it was it was beautiful to revisit. And I was um galled by like by what I misremembered. I think I misremembered it as being a, a more, I guess, quote unquote, dramatic and hmm. um, intense and maybe grander than it really was. It was much more intimate, much simpler, much more of sort of a, these three specific discrete chapters than, I don't know, my brain in the, you know, in the last five years put in all this other stuff I thought, you know, that we saw. In my head, I thought that we saw Juan Mahershala Marshall Ali's lovely character, doting drug lord, a daddy <laughs> man. Um, I all of the above. All of the above. I like thought that we like saw him pass away. Like there are things that I just completely mm-hmm. misremembered from the movie um, that I think emotionally impact that like were I, I emotionally felt from watching it. But having not seen it in five years, I was like, oh, like a lot of things that I thought happened didn't happen, and yet the film was sort of even was better for it for not filling in all the blanks and coloring it, coloring in all of the lines. I had a similar thing with the middle chapter of Chiron. I remembered it ending in an act of violence uh, and him getting sent away, but I didn't really remember the details of it that well. And it is still pretty, you know, it's a violent scene that happens. But my memory of that, I think, was more dramatic. Like you were saying, Chris, like it's an intimate and like it's a movie, not a lot, in which not a lot happens. And I think that's Mm -hmm. important for the theme of it, that it's like a very everyday story given this huge meaning in the way that the story is told. Um, But I think you're right that it's easy to misremember it as being kind of a huge sweeping story. It just feels that way. David, what did you remember about Moonlight before diving back into it? Um, I, I, I had a, a mix of the two experiences. I was surprised that I really had the final chapter in my brain, like beat for beat. I mean, mm-hmm. I really, it is just such an immaculate, um, sexy, layered, beautifully acted, um, really two-hander. Uh, yeah. That I and yeah. I was just every everywhere it went, every line of dialogue. I was like, "Yep, yep, yep." This is exactly how I remember it. Um, and I, I think that really speaks to how the movie got as far as it did because it is this beautifully small movie at times. But um, I, I think that last chapter it has this really intense and almost feel good emotional resonance that carries into a whole different plane. I think. So that that was the first takeaway. And then the second was it's just a small miracle that this movie won Best Picture. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it, – it's because it's not, say, 12 Years a Slave, mm-hmm. which was um, the first movie with the black cast to win Best Picture um, and was a very grand, very devastating historical drama. Yeah. This is very much a character piece. It's very much an independent film. Um, it can be kind of weird and experimental at times, which mm-hmm. um, is not a quality to discount here either. And it's from a director who's, I think, to a lot of the Academy was unknown. And uh, it's just, I think it's a masterpiece. And I'm just so happy that it won and we still get to talk about it. My hot take, which uh, is not really that hot a take, but I was in, in that last act that you were talking about, David, I think 
Andre Holland is the reason this movie won Best Picture. Wow. <laughs> but, but Trevante Rhodes is incredible in those scenes. And obviously, this movie is a huge accomplishment from Barry Jenkins and mm-hmm. everyone else who's involved in making it. But the way that Andre Holland carries those last scenes and is so, like, tender and thoughtful. And, like, Kevin as a character through the whole movie is kind of this oasis of, like, caring and, you know, confidence in who he is. But the way, like, the energy between the two of them in that last scene and, like, there's that shot where they're standing in the kitchen, like, four feet apart and you, like, feel that physical space between them. Uh, And I think Andre Holland, like, carries a huge amount of that and leaves you feeling so emotional in a movie that's, like, emotional but, like, experimental and, like, not, like, pulling on heartstrings in an obvious way. You feel that ending so strongly, and I think that that translates into votes. Yeah. I'm going to do you one better. I think <laughs> I think it is him and Janelle Monet. Oh, my God. She's so good in this movie. Oh, uh, yeah. She, oh. She's so great. And and that scene that you're talking about at the end of the – I think it's the, it's the last scene of the movie yeah. before, yeah. you know, that, that brief cut back to, to Little. You know, the last line or one of the last lines is uh, Trevante Rhodes' Chiron saying – you know, I haven't been touched by a man since since you. And mm-hmm. the camera just holds on Andre Holland's Kevin, and it is just the way he takes the information in and he really absorbs it and mm-hmm. feels it. And then there's just this slight smile that's mm-hmm. so sweet and understanding. Uh, just really warmed my heart. And then I, I thought back to a scene in the first... Uh, third, where and it's where Janelle Monae meets um, Little, and she gets in the car, mm-hmm. and she just sits there and looks at him, and again, just holds the camera on her. It's completely silent, and it's the same thing where she just smiles, and then they cut to him eating <laughs> very quietly inside. But it's this this the images of these other actors just kind of looking at this character and mm-hmm. and loving him and um, I think communicating what so much and so little is where the movie gets a lot of its power. Taking and they, sorry, sorry, Chris, I keep cutting you off, but I have to say, they yeah. link him to her character, Teresa, earlier where he cooks dinner for Chiron at the diner and he's like, if I cook, you're going to talk. And that's really similar to something she says earlier, like yes, when exactly. he's eating at their house. So like there's there's a really deliberate link between those two characters. Okay, yep. Chris, yeah. what no, do you I, think won this movie best picture? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I would add, I mean, this is maybe the like the the not a hot take, but I do think Mahershala Ali falls right in line with that yeah. mm-hmm. um, in terms of just seeing this little boy and taking him in and just really and uh, his work is so subtle and he really is not in that many scenes and I forgot how few scenes and what an impact like he makes with sort of so little just really that monologue of taking him I mean I think it's for me it's the monologue when he teaches him how to swim and how to float and sort of how to survive in water and then you know um, black boys looking blue in the moonlight and that idea and this hit me in a way that didn't hit me I guess five or six years ago when it came out but blue as a color, but blue is also a feeling and also a state of being mm-hmm. and also like, mm. you know, an emotional state as well. Just really wrecked me this time. So I, be, and, and I got Barry Jenkins cinematography in terms of just lingering and giving space to, you know, to having Janelle Monae and uh, Andre Holland and Mahershali simply take in Little or mm-hmm. Black or Chiron was really beautiful. I did want to add too, which is kind of lovely, given that this is a queer movie and a queer, you know, story, that Janelle Monae has since come out as non-binary, you know, which is yeah. really fantastic. And, you know, that has sort of nothing to do with uh, the character that she portrays in the film, but just is a little like, oh, like a little Easter egg, like a little, oh, like, you know, there was some <laughs> queer 
energy, you know, in there from the get-go. But I was really blown away by Mahershala with how much he did with so little. And I do want to say, as for the three actors that play um, Chiron, Trevante Rhodes, um, Ashton Sanders, and um, the little boy, Alex Hibbert, the way that they... And I remember being blown away uh, by this in 2016, but the way that they eat, the, the idiosyncratic, like the little way that yeah. they eat the, every time that they're eating because each of them has a, has a scene where they're eating food I was blown away by the detail with how they embodied each other so well mm-hmm. you can just see the through line of this person it's really some of the best like casting and acting directing in terms of keeping this one character the same sort of like soul and mannerisms just the way the shoveling the way they shoveled food in their mouth the way they held the fork I was just like oh my god this is attention to detail this is directing <laughs> this is acting yeah. so I really I was really just sort of bowled over by that small element of it I noticed that when you know you first meet adult Chiron and he is he's he's become Herschel Ali's one like he's kind of stepping into the role of this like semi benevolent drug dealer and you see him kind of teaching a younger guy and he's wearing, you know he's like dressed the same, um, driving a really similar car um, and then he transforms into young Chiron when he goes and sees Kevin again and the, the way that that mm-hmm. transformation happens on his face um, is really remarkable and like you said Chris like it's a feat of acting but directing and like just care and Barry Jenkins knowing every single thing that he wanted to come across on camera and not having to highlight it and just letting it be there and be so powerful. I do think we shouldn't forget to talk about Naomi Harris, who plays Mm -hmm. um, Chiron's mother, who did get an Oscar nomination for her work as uh, Chiron's mother, who I, again, remembered as being... more of a, you know, quote unquote antagonist sort of Mm -hmm. villain character than she really was. And I do, I will say that the scene that I remembered sort of beat for beat was um, their final scene when she visits him or when he visits her um, back in Florida and she sort of says that she'll always love him and apologizes. She's working at a rehab center basically, right? Yes, working at a rehab facility, yeah, rehab facility center and is ostensibly clean or at least off drugs at the at that juncture and her like tearful apology and and speaking of people taking things in you know and how Trevante Rhodes took that in and took that information in and mm-hmm. you know the silent teardrops that fell and their sort of reconciliation and the idea of forgiveness was really powerful and I don't I mean I know she's still working and she works a bunch I mean I think of her sort of a, as a <laughs> it's funny because I think of her like in this movie and I think of her in James Bond and not yeah you know, <laughs> uh, as much in between, but I I really do think it's sort of a a prickly, unlikable in in parts, uh, tricky character to play. I thought she she found the humanity in that and did yeah. a really great job. And she's British, which always is you know that's always crazy to me when that <laughs> when that happens. So she and Mahershala Ali reunited uh, in Swan Song last year, ah. which I had forgotten about until just now looking at her Wikipedia. I saw the movie; she's good in it. Um, mm. you know she's she's still working a lot. Yeah, happy. She is so she is so good in this movie. I mean, even in that scene too, just the way she is kind of struggling to light the cigarette, um, which can be uh, a bad addict trope in a lot of movies, but it's it's really rooted in her anxiety in the scene and her pain in the scene. And I don't know, I just I just was really struck by the way she played that, uh, and it was just so kind of heartbreaking and intense to watch her try to. <laughs> 
get through that moment. Oh, yeah. I feel like I remember the story about her being in the movie is that like she was only on set for like a week. And yes. She got, like cast yeah. late. Like her like her work in this is kind of even more miraculous when you consider that. I think it was like two or three days even. I don't yeah. want to misspeak, but I totally remember that was a big part of her campaign was like, I, you know, I got there. I think I had like four days on set, shot all my scenes and was gone. And I was like, I didn't even know movies could be made that way. <laughs> but we, we all learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, we learned a lot since 2016. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, here. So she was doing press for Bond. I was traveling all over. I think I flew in from Mexico. I was in a different city every three days and she was on the set for three days. That's three nuts. days. That is actually nuts. <laughs> I know. That's wild. Ugh. So should we look back at this movie's Oscar history? Because it really is, um, it's a fascinating story even before you get to the La La Land mix-up. Um, and this was something I was learning listening back to our old episodes of this podcast. Even like the week before the Oscars, we were like, well, you know, like Moonlight would be a really exciting win, but I just don't know. And I think it's the movie that started to teach us that something that is small but makes people feel passionate can win, which is what happened yeah. with Coda, Coda, what happened with Parasite. <laughs> um, it was. It felt like the first example of that. To me, Spotlight feels different, then maybe we can debate that. Um, I mean, David, you were also covering Oscars back then. What What is your memory of how the Moonlight Surge happened? Um, my memory was I was completely shocked. I just remember, <laughs> where was I working at the time? I, think, I was at Slate, and I just remember the, the Slack channel uh, going completely insane. <laughs> and I think I was on like a, t a 30 second delay, which happens so often with these streams. And so I was like, wait, what, what, <laughs> like, what what's happening? <laughs> because it was literally while the La La Land people were just on the stage. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I think in, in terms of the trajectory of that race, La La Land always felt like a pretty uneasy, but strong front runner, kind of in the way we talked about Power of the Dog, mm -hmm. which uh -huh. was... You know, who would unseat it? Um, yeah. Definitely Moonlight was the critics' favorite. It was the passion pick, but, you know, it was nominated for SAG Ensemble. Um, and like Power of the Dog, La La Land was not, which was the first big warning sign. Uh, but Moonlight lost to Hidden Figures. And so I think Hidden Figures started to emerge as the, well, maybe this is the feel-good. Um, it was a huge broader... hit, like, right at the time that the Oscars were happening. Yeah. What a year for Janelle Monae. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I am upset she was not nominated for one of those movies because I think Octavia Spencer was nominated for Hidden Figures. And I love Octavia Spencer, but I think Janelle Monae really steals that movie, too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I digress. So I think that in the end, you probably had a really close race. Like, I think in the end, based on the way the Academy votes comparatively CODA won that race pretty comfortably. Mm. Um, mm. But I, I don't know that Moonlight had that kind of room. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it didn't win Producers Guild. It didn't win Directors Guild. It really was kind of on its own uh, as an Oscar winner and a Golden Globe winner, I should say. Mm. Um, because La La Land won musical or comedy. Right. There was yeah. Yeah. to be the separation. So I think in the end, it really was, I totally agree with you, Katie, that first instance of an upset being pulled off by a movie that, you know, 10 years earlier, you wouldn't think would be able to win that award. Just, or be nominated. Or yeah. even, yeah, or even be nominated um, yeah. by the sheer scale of it and the the resources. This was also the first win for A24. You know, there's mm. a lot of firsts uh, with this movie. Wow. That, I have to come out and 
say, and this is a controversial statement, I honestly loved the movie La La Land. I mean, I really, I really that's did. Not, I think that's controversial. controversial. I feel like now it might be, but I really, I really did <laughs> love Emma Stone's performance in it and, and like really, really loved it. But I, I absolutely, I mean, I adored and loved and, you know, Moonlight was on a whole different level. So I remember just as a, you know, as a, lay person, just someone who followed Gold Derby and listened to this podcast even, really being like, oh, you know what, you know, it's probably gonna be La La Land, which is good, but it'd be amazing if Moonlight could sort of, you know, mm. eke it out um, somehow. But it seems sort of like La La Land, I mean, a la Power of the Dog, a little too big to fail. But this was, I remember I was sitting on my cousin's couch when the whole, when the Michigas happened, and I could not we were screaming we couldn't be we could, we could not believe it uh when the when the mix-up happened but we were sort of screaming with joy rather than with anguish as i'm sure many <laughs> others were mm-hmm. i mean my, my story of where i was is that we were um doing a live stream at the oscar party and we had like this back room with like a carpet that had gotten wet and smelled terrible and it was me and mike hogan who was hosting little gold men with me then and phoebe robinson who wow. was now way too big a deal to do anything like that with us but she was hosting it with us and we like saw them Nuts and, La La and kind of all like turned to our notes because we were going to start this live stream immediately after the Oscars ended and then slowly like started looking back up being like what 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 and then went on the air like 30 seconds later just like trying to figure out what to say wow. um, yeah, and, then, and that was the end of my, my career in live television uh, for, <laughs> <laughs> for reason. what a way to go <laughs> I mean the other thing to remember about this, these Oscars is that it was spring 2017. Shit had gotten really crazy when Trump mm-hmm. got elected yeah. in 2016. And like the way that we all psychologically processed the 2016 election and then this mix up, which is, you know, certainly lower stakes, but just as like, wait, is the earth still round? Like, how do I, <laughs> what is reality? That was a lot to take in in a six month period. And I do think it had an impact for sure. In that Trump's election had an impact in, in Moonlight's way. Uh, you know, Moon, I do think Moonlight is, I don't like calling it a feel good movie, but it does, it, it's not as, it's not a difficult sit. Like perhaps it could be painted just based on, you know, reading a log line sure. or something. But I do think that coming into the back half of that award season, the 2017 part um, after the holiday, there was probably a sense of, recognizing something more for its importance, its weight than how it makes you feel. And for and challenging so the status quo. And for challenging the status quo. Exactly. And for, and for, yeah, for, be, for representing a step forward, for representing something, uh, for, for being something uh, in Hollywood that's incredibly groundbreaking and progressive and, yeah, a counter to what was happening uh, outside of the town. Yeah, <laughs> so. a win for the little guy. Yeah, really. yeah. Well, it was also a year after Oscar So White, which I had mm-hmm. sort of misrem. I, I think I got Oscar So White and Me Too a little bit mixed up in my head, and I <laughs> oh, hadn't God. realized that it had happened before this. Um, and you know, the year before it had been all white acting nominees, and this year it was markedly more diverse. And I think that was certainly on the minds of a lot of voters in terms of wanting to to challenge the status quo, like we said. Yeah. yeah. Do you either of you remember anything specific that A twenty four did to sort of campaign, like any sort of you know, like any events or anything? Because I'm like now so interested in like sort of how how they spread the word because it feels like a movie that a lot of Academy voters might not have pressed play on, you know, mm-hmm. necessarily, but ostensibly they had to because they saw it and loved it. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I just remember very generally like early, early conversations, it was a movie that you know, first they had really strong strategists attached to it who didn't work at A24. Um, and, and they really believed that it could go all the way. And I think um, this 
kind of kickstarted the era too of like you know a neon winning for Parasite of of specialty newer studios realizing they can go all the way if you mm-hmm. attach the right people have the right movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think especially in the case of newer studios, you need a really unimpeachable choice to run with it. Um, but yeah, I think it was honestly just having a ton of faith and. Being a being new means you can try different things and be a little bit more scrappy, um, and and as we saw with Apple and Coda, obviously they don't have Apple's resources, but you know being able to invest entirely in one contender, and we've talked a lot about say Netflix having so many contenders the last few years. Obviously by the end, all attention was on Power of the Dog, but when it's just so singularly this movie can go all the way, um, that can make a big difference. Yeah. Um, I, listening to our old episodes, I was reminded that, like, Mark Duplass wrote a whole open letter about how much he loved Moonlight and Justin <laughs> Chang. Oh, my God, Times I remember that. <laughs> okay, I did I, not I remember. Think, I did not I know that. I think there were really genuine, like, gen- genuine word-of-mouth efforts of people saying, like, I love this movie. You have to watch this movie. And by then, A24 is definitely building its vibe of being really cool. Like, yeah. the year before, they had had Amy nominated at the Oscars, the oh. documentary, and then also Room, which just overperformed mm-hmm. like crazy. Like, Lenny Abramson got that Best Director nomination. So they clearly had a way to reach out to the people to get them to pay attention. And, um, David, you said earlier, like, Moonlight is this critic's favorite. So I think even, even if you're like, oh, the movie sounds like such a bummer, like, you do have to pay attention to it. And all those factors really kind of came together perfectly. Yeah, that happens every year. Um, like a drive my car, that mm-hmm. movie would not mm-hmm. have been nominated for anything outside of international film if the critics did not really pinpoint it as the movie to champion. Um, and Parasite too, mo- right? Parasite too. Yeah, that can take a movie a long way. Mm. Do we think watching Moonlight? Do we think that it has influenced movies that have come after it, or is Barry Jenkins such a singular filmmaker? Not that he has like a style that like you would know it if you saw it in a second, but like I couldn't think of much that has looked like Moonlight other than Underground Railroad and If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, what am I forgetting? Hmm. They I might was, might not be. I was sort of not that Barry Jenkins is the first person to to put movies into chapters, you know, but I do feel like that is sort of, I was like, I was like, oh, this is like worst. <laughs> I can't believe I thought this was like, worst oh, this is like the worst person in the world. <laughs> I was like, that's not how I should be conceiving of it. But I was like, oh, that sort of device. And just the, 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 the art, like melding sort of an art housey, more creative uh, take or directing style with sort of a grounded story. Um, I don't know. I feel like I can't think of like another director that I'm like, oh, he's in the Barry Jenkins school of directing. So I guess Jenkins remains sort of singular, but it feels like he created this whole moment, this indie film, this like vibe, this A20. I mean, I I did not, I don't really think of A24 as room or Amy as much as I, you know, enjoyed those films. I feel like that was like, Moonlight is what kicked off the mm. the craze or like, you know, that sort of the whole vibe, if you will, for me. Well, so looking at the A24 Wikipedia page, I was going to throw out Minari as maybe in the um, mm. the footsteps of Moonlight as like a as a personal story with a like distinct directorial view that's still got kind of this like family element. I think that's a to good. It. Yeah, that's a I good think that's a good comparison. Corollary. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that movie is another good example of um, how hard it is to to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, how hard it is to make a movie that feels so small and so big at the same time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, that's not really something you can replicate. It's just, I think, talent and having the right story and even, to an extent, hitting at the right moment. Yeah. yeah. Timing is everything. Moonlight is, I think, 
you know, a masterpiece no matter when it comes out. Does it win, you know, if it comes out in the middle of the Obama era? I don't know the answer to that. But um, That is a great thought experiment. Yeah, it, it, it's it's worth pondering. But um, for the sole reason of Moonlight, I am glad. For the sole reason of Moonlight winning, I'm glad it came out when it did, even though it had to fight against horrible political narratives. Yeah. I mean, looking at the so I'm on, now I'm on the Wikipedia page for the 2016 Oscars, and just looking at what Moonlight won and what it didn't win, um, it you know it loses cinematography to La La Land, which like mm. I get, I <laughs> guess it loses score to La La Land, which I wanted like throw something yeah. at the wall. I mean, this is also <laughs> the year Pertel. that um, I mean, I, I, I like La La Land too. Like I think there's a lot of wins I would give to it, but also this is the year that uh, Moana loses best original song. Uh, that's a movie that's been playing on a loop in my house lately and that song <laughs> is so good um and also this is the year that it's like eight really good best picture nominees and then hacksaw ridge which is like <laughs> really God, andrew garfield the only thing good you can say about that his well, first oscar nomination i know mm. now we can just talk about tick tick boom instead also Thank remembering God. that this is the year that amy adams gets snubbed for arrival which remains one of the more bonkers oscar snubs ever yeah that was crazy for Florence Foster Jenkins, sorry. <laughs> that was... And Denis Villeneuve gets nominated for Best Director. It's crazy. Um, he was nominated. Yeah, he was nominated he was, for He it. was nominated. Yeah, it's a really interesting Oscar year in in so many different ways. Yeah. Mm. Well, we're wrapping up our Pride Month flashbacks, you guys. Any final thoughts on what we've learned? Are you already thinking about what we should do next year? I don't think we've fully exhausted the Oscar <laughs> Pride history as, as limited as that history may be. It is limited. <laughs> Every month should be Pride Month. <laughs> Every month should be Oscar <laughs> Pride Month. I think it's so fascinating. I've learned so much. I mean, in and out and um, going and talking about movies that we didn't even talk about, you know, Philadelphia and whatnot. There is sort of a, you know, a secret history here that hopefully is becoming, that I would say is becoming sort of less secret and more part of the, the mainstream culture of the Oscars. But it is really, I find it fascinating to revisit it. And I have all these new movies that I need to go and watch, which is, yeah. which is, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's a great time to watch old movies. I think that when you talk about, um, especially like, history of gay Hollywood. And I, I, I think I went into this month of recording a little bit nervous about how some of these movies would hold up. And it was really fascinating to me that they all really held up. Like Chris, you mentioned in and out which obviously I know holds up because I've seen it like a hundred times. <laughs> um, but, you know, even talking about Rebel Without a Cause or Philadelphia, mm -hmm. we didn't talk about Philadelphia, but I did uh, watch it over the past month. These are movies that, Yes, they were made in a specific time. The way we understood and talked about gay identity, queer identity was very different. But they have a real place in how we talk about Hollywood now, too. And, and I think that that's a really good takeaway for what we covered and what we kind of found between them. Yeah, I was, I was, I love doing it. I'm really. Well, uh, same time next year, guys. Well, see, <laughs> see, see you back here next June. See you there. That does it for this week's show. I'll be gone next week, uh, but David and Richard will be taking over in my stead. Um, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Um, David's still doing some great coverage of the studios and the streamers um, and where they stand as the Emmy race wraps up, which I think you guys, um, or the Emmy nominations race wraps up, um, which you guys can talk more about next week. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Chris. Chris Triss. 
You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7215. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the phrase on the lips of every Academy member now goes to Chris Murphy. I really do want to see Billie Eilish's ballot. 